Hi y'all, this is Stephanie Kimu, and welcome back to the Angry Africans podcast. This podcast is about Black anger and what it's done for all of us. So I'll be in conversation with my favorite angry African thinkers, creatives, and activists from the continent and the diaspora to get to know why they mad and what they're doing about it. Like many of you, I have spent a significant amount of time watching TV and film since 2020. And wow, I can't believe how white pandemic TV has become. Meaning, is the entertainment industry still pushing that typical white savior story with a sprinkle of funny black support to the white main character for good measure? Or how you'll have still five to 10 seasons of a show with an all white cast and no mention of diversifying their characters until the absolute last season. Or how about when you hardly ever see just two dark skinned bodies loving each other on camera without there being a, I don't know, slave narrative constantly attached. Unless you've decided not to notice, it's pretty clear that the entertainment powers that be don't like black people, particularly the fullness of our stories, realities, and existences. By this, I mean TV and film have historically painted black people as drug addicts, thugs, slaves, victims, criminals, and other anti-Black tropes, which have gone on to color and inform the imaginations of populations of people watching. That's what I call an agenda. When wealthy white power structures use their money to ensure that only one story is told forever and ever and always. But of course, Black people are still disrupting this cycle because as our angry African ancestor, Vincent Hardy reminds us, we did not wade through rivers of blood so that we might surrender the interpretation of our lives into the hands of others. Insert Felicia Pride, TV and film writer, director, who is no longer making the case for why black people in our love story should be told. She is writing our stories no matter what for us and no one else. From Queen Sugar to Netflix's Really Love, Felicia talks to us about why cultural specificity is important, parentheses, black love is unique, and what it will realistically take for black creatives to bring the spectrum of our stories to the big and small screens. I have Felicia here with me. I I have been following you and your work and your e-learning platform for years now. But for those who don't know, you're an author, a screenwriter, a producer, a director of products that are so black and beautiful. It's so amazing to see. You also, I did not know this about you, but you have, you're the author of six books, um, which is amazing. <laughs> and of course you write on Queen Sugar and Grey's Anatomy, which is why where people probably know you from. But for those you don't know, you are from Baltimore, Maryland. I love a DMV connection. And well, welcome, Felicia. Thank you for taking the time to join the podcast. 
Thank you for having me. And I love the name Angry Africans. It's my favorite. (laughs) Along with everybody else in the world, I've spent a lot of time watching TV the last two years. (laughs) I've spent a lot of time in bed, in my house, scouring all the streaming platforms for something that felt (sighs) moving, thoughtful, not Insta, you know, TV and movies, but, and I've watched a lot of movies and what I've come to realize is I think there's like a white agenda going on. And that white agenda, I would probably define it kind of similarly to the idea that main characters, the stories, the, the, the visuals, the the feelings that are being evoked, the main characters that do that the best or the easiest, it seems like, in Hollywood are white characters. And especially cisgendered white women are always the center of these characters, who they love, who they're talking to, what they're doing. And we've so normalized this. Um, and to the point where I feel like a lot of Black people have become numb to how much white narratives that we are taking in all the time. I always have to stop my husband and say, whoa, there are no Black people in this show. There's there's not one Black person in this movie. And we both look at each other and like, oh, shit, I guess I didn't notice. (laughs) And so I want to know your opinion. Do you feel like there's a little white agenda going on, like stuffing white narratives down our throats, especially with the work that you do in the entertainment industry? Um, I mean, I think that Hollywood is a racist system, right? It's a very American system in that in that regard, right? So uh, I think what you're seeing is just systemic racism playing out in different ways, creative ways, right? Propaganda essentially packaged well. Um, but it's funny that you say, you know, I, I'm on a I'm of two minds. One mind is like sometimes I'm like, why aren't we in this, right? Why don't I see any black people? And then sometimes I'm like, I'm so glad they left us out of this. I'm so glad they left us the fuck alone in this particular narrative um, because I, I don't want to pop up uh, superficially. I don't want to pop up just to sort of be the the sort of diversity best friend. I don't want to pop up in those ways. If I pop up, I want to be fully formed. And if I can't be that um, and it doesn't make sense, I'd rather it, you know, leave us out of it. Leave us out of it. So there are certain narratives where I am happy to be left out of, and then others um, where I'm like, "This, there's no reason why we are not in this. Or if we are in it, why aren't we fully realized? Why aren't we complicated? Just as you're saying, why don't we have the depth of emotions and and also the the luxury of being, uh, you know, an anti-hero, the luxury of being all the things beyond sort of the respectable black best friend. The idea that you have brought up a few times of being fully formed is it pierces me to my core to hear that because I've never had the language to say the fact that these Black characters seem to only be supporting the work, the love, the aesthetic, the families of whiteness 
doesn't, there's something missing here. And that's exactly what it is. It's this fully formed person, this fully formed human that has a family, that has a black family or an immigrant black family, all these nuances. And I, I want to know in your opinion, what are other norms that erase blackness? Um, because that's one, that's a huge one. What other norms have you seen working on set, working as a writer in some of the, the world's most popular shows? What else is really erasing us from TV and film? Well, I recently uh, tweeted a, tweeted saying that I do not write characters who happen to be, who happen to be Black. I write Black characters. And so to give you an example, I went on a, a meeting for a project that was going to be a rewrite. And um, it was, you know, I was supposed to come in, you know, apparently, and, and the, the main character was Black, right? But when I read the script, it could have been anybody. And some people like that. I don't. <laughs> I want some cultural specificity. I think any character should have specificity, right? But especially characters who have different, unique, interesting backgrounds, I want to see cultural specificity. So when I had this meeting, I was like, okay. And it was a love story. So I said, well, who do you... If, so the guy, the main character is a black man, love story. I said, who... Are, who are you? Who's going to be the love interest, right? And they were like, "We don't know. We haven't really thought about that." Which was strike one for me. I'm like, "Okay, you haven't thought about that. That's an issue." And then two, I told them, I said, "You know, if it's not a black love interest, that's a very different story to me." Um, and I'm only really interested in this point in my career of writing. I think there's power in Black love, and that's what I want to write. But the fact that they hadn't considered it and they thought that they could just slide any character into this and it would be the same story is what happens often, right? It's like, well, let's just make them Black so we can have a Black face, but let's not actually think about the cultural specificity of that. And so that kind of goes to what I was saying before of like the fully formedness is like it it it, it lends itself to cultural specificity. It lends itself to not being able just to slide anybody into a character. That's me. There are other people, of course, who who disagree, other Black writers who want us to be able to do anything. And I, I fully agree with that. We should be able to do it, it, everything and that Black people are not a monolith. But there are cultural specificities that I like to see um, in my work. That is so amazing. Another term that I didn't have the language for because you are absolutely right. When there is a love story and it's black, that is, and it's two black people loving each other. That is different than when I see an, an interracial couple or a white couple or an Asian American couple. That's different. When I know it's about black love, I know how to position myself. I know how to make space for this narrative. It's a micro bond, a micro connection, you know, that we're having, that I'm seeing myself in the story that is happening before my eyes. And now I feel at home. Now I feel good. But I, I think the cultural specificity that you're talking about that's lacking is a testament to how apolitical people can see Blackness. And that's so surprising. Like our Blackness is so loud and so angry sometimes, so joyful sometimes. It's so all-encompassing. How could it be so apolitical <laughs> in, in the outside world? How could you think when you 
are considering a love story. How could you think two Black people loving each other is not a political act, as our ancestors have always reminded us? And that's why I love your work. I love your work. From the moment I saw Really Love, before you guys had even finished the cut, in LA, I think it was 2018 or 2019. Yeah, I remember that. I, I you remember I scooted right over to you. I said I could tell you what you wore that night. I scooted right over to you. I said I need to know this person, <laughs> and I appreciated that so much. Let me tell you, I really did. Thank you, because I had just gone through this experience of really love that bridged that the diaspora that was in my favorite city in the world, Washington, D.C., that was honestly had two dark-skinned people loving each other. Oh, my gosh. You don't even see that. (laughs) Like, shout out to two dark-skinned people loving each other. I've always wanted to know what motivated you, what informed this path of saying, I want to tell Black love stories. I want to tell dynamic and multifaceted Black stories because LA is really hard to be in and want to be hella, hella, hella Black and write hella, hella Black shit. That is an amazing question. <laughs> and I'm, I, and, and when, you, when you were asking it, I was like, I don't know. But, you know, I think it's just a mixture of influences, right? It is my mother who Um, You know, both my parents are from Baltimore. My mother, who was an educator and really believed in sort of the power of learning and the power of sharing knowledge and the power of of, um, sort of strengthening the mind. And then my father, who is a dreamer um, and, oh, and then my mother, I should say that, you know, always taught Black kids, right? So she always believed in the power of uh, Black youth of the power of black teachers, of the power of of our minds, of our our potential. Um, And then my father, who was just a dreamer who navigated in white spaces and did not thrive in those white spaces um, and actually was very traumatic for him in many ways. Um, And so you had these mixes of those. And then, you know, I'm a child of hip hop. I'm a Gen Xer. So the idea of of young Black people writing their way out of or writing their way into um, identities and into conversations and into things that are bigger than themselves was a huge, huge influence on me. I always say before I knew James Baldwin, who I did not discover until high school, you know, I knew Big Daddy Kane and I knew Slick Rick. Right. And I was so enthralled by the storytelling, by the bravado, by the in your face, I am here narrative that I kind of took with me into my first sort of iteration of writing, which I was a journalist. And I and I took the eye into journalism in terms of inserting myself into pieces and wanting to see myself and see others like me in the world. Um, and then just thinking about my family in Baltimore and wanting to see the the diversity of Black people that I know uh, from my friends to my family to people I've collaborated with. And so I think it's just this amalgamation of 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 life. Uh, and then also just knowing, you know. I think what what challenges a lot of Hollywood execs, these white Hollywood execs, is that they can't fathom all the pain and um, oppression that Black people have managed 
to survive, right? And also have black joy on top of that, right? They can't fathom and understand black joy. So one of the things that I'm interested in is like showing our full lives that includes joy, that includes pleasure, that includes, um, you know, arguments with our parents, that includes all the sort of things of living, um, but it's also black. <laughs> like, so, and, and and I feel like that's black life. Like, I feel like all I'm trying to do essentially is, is, is explore black life. That's it. That's it. And, and it's amazing to me of how challenging trying to get other people to understand that is how challenging it is to get projects off the ground that, that do that. But that's essentially all I'm trying to do is just like represent our lives on, on, on screen. That's it. I love that. And I, it's a ode to just us archiving ourselves, I think. You know, I'm really, that's why I'm so enthralled in accounts, people, communities that are really documenting our lives and documenting how we love and what we're saying to each other and how we make each other feel. And I honestly feel like that's why we all fell in love with really love. As soon as I moved to LA from DC, I had a a burning desire to get back to DC. And probably three weeks later is when I saw really love with you at your screening. And it looked like, Oh, I still get chills thinking about it. It it reminded me of, of where I met my partner in DC. Y'all were like showing shots of H street, like a love story, a black one about friendship, about black community. And I want to know when thinking about really love, why did you, want to tell that story in that moment in time for you? Well, first, I wrote the script nearly 10 years ago. It took me 10 years to to sell Really Love. And I met up with Angel Christy Williams, who's the director of Really Love, probably in year seven. Um, and we both were really committed to wanting to tell a a a Black love story that also felt like real life, right? I I think that, like, I I just haven't experienced a romantic comedy. Um, I want to write some, but I wanted something just that just felt um, grounded and like it it could be a page out of of our lives. Um, But I was so, you know, we were both from Baltimore, but I kind of came up of age as an artist in DC. And I find DC to be such a fucking, like, fascinating melting pot of Black people, right? Like the diversity in D.C. across the diaspora, across class, across lifestyle, across like, um, it just, it's to me, it is, and then the history of D.C. D.C. has such a Black history, such an interesting history. And then also to be uh, in the power center of the country, right? Or the power center of the country is wild to me, right? So it just felt like a place where I was coming of age as an, as an artist, but also a place that's so ripe for story that's beyond what we typically saw, which, you know, or what we typically see is politically ba- political-based stories, right? Um, but there's just so much I feel to be gleaned from DC. Uh, and so that that was that was the reason why I was set there. 
And also like my dating life, I was trying to date as an artist in DC and you, I'm sure you can attest to this. Like it was challenging because folks were like, oh, you don't have a job. You know what I mean? Like it was like, it was, it was challenging. It was challenging. I feel you. I mean, you know, my, my partner, when I met him was an artist, you know, he, he'll say like, you could see my ribs. I was starving. I was a starving artist. So when we saw Really Love, we looked at each other like, were they following us around the first three months of our relationship or not? Like, this is so moving. We all sat around and after seeing the screening of Really Love in 2019, we all sat around, everyone there, and spent at least an hour just talking about your movie. And I think it's a testament to how hurt a lot of Black people have been sitting through film after film and TV show after TV show full of trauma. I can say I'm keeping a running list of films that I do not watch. Um, 12 Years a Slave, have never seen it. Django Unchained, have never seen it. Queen and Slim, have never seen it. But really love was healing. It was a healing answer to the Black trauma porn that we have all been experiencing, especially if you are between 35 and 45. You know, <laughs> like we've experienced a, such a roller coaster. And I just wonder how else, well, I guess my real question is, what do you have to go through to tell a story like that? <laughs> Girl, I mean, that's trauma. You know what I mean? Like trying to get really loved on, on, on screen was a lot. Um, because, you know, I would get people who would say, we've seen this movie a million times. And I'd be like, with black people and crickets. You know, I'd get people saying this movie's too small. I remember, and especially when Angel boarded and, you know, we were taking it out and and uh, people would say that it was too small, too small of a movie, too too niche, you know what I mean? Um, and just the fight, the just, I mean, there's fights. You, you, you overcome one hurdle and then there's another fight and then there's another fight and then there's another fight. Um, and I know Angel can attest to just even distribution and you get distribution, but then, then what, you know? So it was, it was, it was really, really difficult. Um, and I think that's one thing that I, I want audiences to understand more is what black creators who care about black people have to go through in order to get our work to you. It is, it is a lot. It is a lot. And, you know, with the trauma conversation, I just want us to be specific because, um, you know, trauma is death. Trauma is uh, divorce. Trauma is many things, right? And I don't want us to lose the natural trauma that happens in our everyday lives, But I do think that there are certain types of trauma, and you pointed to trauma porn, that is, um, you know, acceptable to Hollywood, right? Slavery being one of them. Yes, bring on the slavery stories. But I don't want us to get to the point where we are stripping out the humanity of our stories um, completely. Uh, because our lives, I just, I, 
I want again, if I go back to wanting to represent our lives on screen, there are multitudes of struggles <laughs> that black people go to. The challenge is, is balancing that with the hope, right? Because even as we struggle, we still laugh. We're still fucking. We're still smiling. We're still calling big mama. We're still um, having dinner with our friends, but shit is going on. And that's what I want to see. Hearing you explain that so clearly makes me realize I sometimes have anxious feelings about TV and film because I have lived most of my adult life seeing iterations of Black trauma that have been very triggering for me to the point where I'm starting to reject even basic human emotions being replicated on screen, like not being able to sit through Black people arguing, not being able to sit through Black people engaging with police and even having a discussion afterwards. Like, I have never thought about that until this conversation, that we might be all at a heightened point as Black folks of the things we're seeing. And that's why maybe we gravitate towards healing entertainment. Oh, yeah. And also, as as Black people, we don't have the balance that white folks do, right? White folks have silly, they have um, just fucking uh, dysfunctional, they have ambitious, aspirational. Like, we definitely are lacking a balance. There is no doubt about that. Um, but there's also a challenge, because, you know, I used to work in marketing. There's a challenge with making sure that Black people know about the content that is on that isn't uh, highly triggering, right? I think that one thing that I learned about Really Love was, you know, we had distribution, which was great through Netflix, but I really feel Strong Black Lead, which is Netflix, Netflix's uh, Black marketing arm, really took Really Love under their wing and promoted that film so beautifully and in such a culturally specific way that I was like, what if Bl- Strong Black Lead didn't exist? I don't know where, I don't know if people would have been, would have known about Really Love in the way that they did. Strong Black Lead, like really, really. So it's so many different factors of why, one, we're not getting the content just in general, right? But then two, why we don't know about some of the wonderful projects that um, our, our Black creators are making, Black creators who care about Black people, because there is some shit out there that's straight propaganda. It looks good. It's packaged well, but it's some, some bullshit. <laughs> you know, that, that is out there. But there are Black people who take care um, in terms of the, what they're creating for Black people, for uh, Black audiences. They understand the power of that, right? And and their shows, Black people don't know about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it reminds me of something you said earlier in terms of what we do and don't know and and why it's so difficult to get Black creatives work out there. The idea of Black art being niche is so, oh my God. You know, I'm reading a book called Love and Rage by a by a Buddhist teacher called Rod Owens. He's a black queer Buddhist teacher. And he says, when you're angry about something, look to your anger and ask, what is it that you need? Mm, I love that. When I think about why the fuck I'm so angry about the niche thing is like, again, you are erasing one of the biggest populations globally. How can you say Black people 
our niche to the point where we don't deserve a full spectrum of storytelling. But what we do deserve is Emily in Paris for a Midwestern, tiny, non-French, that's niche, shit. That's fucking niche. And that's the thing, like, part of my focus is twofold, right? It's yes, trying to fight these fights internally, right? But more so, I'm like, I'm kind of over it in the fact that this is this is American racism, right? Like, I am very clear that it's not even about money, right? Because the diversity case has already been made. So it's not even like, oh, they're leaving money on the table. They don't care. Racism does, uh, that sort of connection between racism, capitalism, like, oh, slavery was about capitalism. Mm, it was about more than that. And we see that in Hollywood. It is about people wanting to maintain a certain level of supremacy and privilege, period, period, right? So for me, I'm like, does it make sense for me to keep like trying to explain to folks who don't really care that we matter? Or is it better for me to try to find ways to continue to make content and get those content, get that content to the people? Like that's what I try to focus on is like, how can I be telling stories outside of the system in order and get those stories to the people? Because I think that a lot of our energy, you know, just like Toni Morrison said about racism being a distraction, like the amount of time that we lose trying to explain our humanity, even in our work. I see work that does that, right? Trying to uh, explain and appeal Black humanity to white folks. It doesn't work. <laughs> they don't. So many don't care. So I'm really focused on like, how can I make work for Black people that explores our lives fully and get that work to Black people? So your service. Thank you for your service. I mean, there are some who really are, you know, trying to fight the good fight. I just don't have it in me anymore in terms of like trying to change a system that was built specifically. It's working the way like many American institutions. It's working the way it's supposed to. What is the enabling environment that you need as a creative? And what's the enabling environment Black creatives who are writing and directing their films and their television shows and producing. What's the enabling environment that's needed for you guys? What is it that Black creatives need? Yeah, we need money, um, access to capital, right? Capital that can help us make stuff. And that could be independently. Internally, in terms of internally in the Hollywood system, we need green lights, right? But then also we need um, executives who understand the cultural stories we're trying to tell and do not try to water those stories down. Then we also need marketing and promotional promotion teams. If that content, you know, if that work gets to air or gets greenlit, that understand how to promote that work uh, in culturally specific ways. Um, Like, I feel like those, and then I think we also just need like professional development in terms of getting more people, more black people into uh, executive and decision-making roles within the system. And I say, and I should say, specify black people who care about black people. Like I know that's hard to assess, but essentially just because you are black face in a white space does not mean that you're down for the cause. Um, but these are the things that, that we need. Like we need, 
I mean, I think just independently access to capital is the huge piece. Like I'm thinking about some of the low budget films. Like I want to do a film based in Baltimore with three generations of black women. Um, you know, I need a couple of million dollars. That's what I need. Uh, and so it's stuff like that from an independent standpoint that is actually possible. And it's interesting because when Really Love, before we sold it, before I even came out here, I was like, okay, you know, 25 investors at 50K. Like I was thinking, how can this be done outside the system? How can this be done independently? And I'm still thinking in that way about projects. I totally understand why you think that way, because similarly in in so many other sectors where Black women are leading the culture and Black people are leading the culture, we're still risks. We're still risks. It's crazy how you can look at a a team of Black creatives knowing what Black culture does for the world and see them as risks and say, we're going to give that white team who was doing, I think I saw a movie about a killer couch on Hulu or something. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> they got a budget about a couch that eats people, a full fucking budget, trailer, popping, everything, right? That's not risky, but a, a story about two queer Afri- West African immigrant people who want to love each other, that's risky? How do you plan on living outside of these paradigms and working outside of these paradigms? Because there's the paradigms that we've been discussing on, on this episode, which is Black people are risky to invest in. P- potentially, Black people are not go- are too niche to invest in. Potentially, Black people are not going to have a full range of emotion or experiences that are going to attract you know, all of these lies and fallacies, like you, you're trying to exist outside of that. You're not trying to make the case again. And it sounds like you're kind of developing your own ecosystem. I mean, the, you know, it's twofold, right? So I believe in having one foot firmly in and one foot firmly out. The foot that's in, though, it has to make sense, right? There are people in Hollywood who get it. Right. There are people in Hollywood who are allies, who are black execs, who are fighting the good fight, who have green light power. Um, So there are there are some people in Hollywood who get it. But I can't bet on that. I can't bet my purpose on that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Especially when I see the projects that are coming out, I see the projects that are prioritized. Um, and a lot of my work doesn't fit in that paradigm. So for me, I'm like, how do I, how do I harness black wealth in order to, uh, create projects? When, uh, you know, when I was in grad school, school, I did a whole, um, independent study on the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and I think a lot about patronage and I think about what, what does black patronage look like, right? How is there, are there ways for us to be smart about how we build production so that the risk is lower than it tends to be in independent films, but we can harness the black dollar or we can harness, harness independent dollars. Like those are some of the ways that I'm thinking about, um, trying to, to create outside of that. Because the fact of the matter is, is that if Hollywood did not exist, I'd still be a storyteller, right? So I cannot 
put all my eggs in this basket because the purpose is bigger than Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood is not my source is what I say all the time. Um, and I still have stories to tell. I can, and I can't wait 10 years. To me, 10 years, is it's not sexy. It's not, it's not going to get these stories told stories told to have to fight for 10 years to get something made. So I'm really starting to think about what are the ways to um, harness the money necessary for independent films. And also what are the other lower cost ways to tell stories? I'm very interested in audio. You know, my production company, Honey Child, which is dedicated to telling and sharing stories by, for, and about Black women over 40 40 and over. We uh, launched our first podcast. Very interesting audio. It is a much more lower risk, uh, lower barrier to entry. Um, you still have the wide in terms, you can go wide in terms of distribution. Um, and so that's very interesting to me of being able to tell stories on audio. So I'm looking at all the different ways that are possible in order to fulfill the mission and the purpose, because the purpose is what's driving me. I want to hear more about Honey Child because I think that is such a huge contribution that you're making to this landscape to say that you're going to focus on such a niche population. I want to hear more about what projects will look like for an independent production company that is focusing on Black women who are 40 and over. Yeah. I mean, so that's the thing, right? It's like, it is to the uh, traditional eye, right? That's risky. Like Black women, first of all, not young people, because we like to prioritize young people and um, but for me, as we as we talked about, you know, I do feel like the cultural influence and cultural capital of Black women is in, immense, right? It is unquantifiable. Um, and when I think about sort of in the entertainment world, the, dri- the drivers of entertainment, uh, particularly from like an on-camera situation, they tend to be honeys. We call our, our Black women 40 and over honeys, right? From the Tarajis to the Holly Berries to the Viola Davis to Beyonce is now a honey. Serena Williams is a honey. Like, God willing, everyone will become a honey <laughs> in that sense when they hit 40, right? And so I think there's a couple of things that happen, right? There is a, uh, I found myself looking at content, which I was, I, I like, but I still felt was, I was having different conversations with my friends, right? There's some great millennial content out there, but I felt like there were conversations I was having with my friends were different. So that was one, just me seeing an opportunity as, as an audience member, right? Um, but then two, wanting to be specific and focused so that we are not trying to um, create for everybody, right? But that's not to say that all of our work is just going to center Black women 40 and over, right? One of the things that we're also interested in is being able to be producers of work by Black women 40 and over. So if there's a Black woman who has a dystopian YA show, um, I want to know about it. So it's also getting us in those spaces um, because I think often we have had um, probably a career prior to, which gives us a really interesting skill set. Um, so it's a lot of things that I think about in that way. And then again, multi-platform. I come from the part of my career was in distribution and marketing and thinking about audience and reaching audiences. 
And how can we be smart about that? How can we be getting content to people in the way that they consume it? That makes sense. Um, And then how can we, again, be a force in building our own pipeline of getting more honeys into the business? Because I also, you know, I was 35 when I moved to LA. uh, So I was not a spring chicken. uh, So I'm that's also part of my experience that's helping to fuel why I'm being so specific uh, with the production company. And it makes so much sense from the beginning of this episode for you to say, I want to document the fullness of the Black experience. Like the fullness means you will focus on this. Another production, Black-owned production company can focus on another quote-unquote niche. It's like The actual beauty in this is, you're right, white people do have that. They have the dystopian stories. They have the immigrant stories. They have the fullness of their existences so accessible for all of us to consume. And so this makes total sense that you're going not wide, but deep. And how we are so lucky (laughs) to live in a time where this exists for us. When you think about angry Africans, which I consider black people who something has happened to them or their and or their community and now they're mad and now they want to do something. Who is your favorite angry African right now in this season of your life? Uh, I would probably say Dominique Morisot. Uh, She is a playwright. She has been on Broadway. So, you know, if you've seen The Temptations or Skeleton Crew um, and she for me is like the epitome of the the type of black artist I yearn to be. She's down to earth, um, just so supportive of me so supportive of so many Black artists, um, is about the work, is about the craft, um, and is also not about that bullshit. (laughs) She recently pulled her play from the Geffen um, because of things that were going down in the background for her Black actors and her Black collaborators. Um, She has no problem speaking truth to power. Uh, And so she, for me, is, and and also had a very eloquent um, commentary that she put on IG about trauma where, you know, for her, she's like, I'm trying to reflect Black liberation on the screen, right? So it's not all Black joy. It's not all Black trauma. I'm trying to get to Black liberation. And I really appreciated that about her and her work. Um, Because one of the things that, and I love this question because um, one of the things that I'm trying to see more on screen is Black rage, Like, I don't think that we get the opportunity to often have Black rage on screen, right? So that's something that I think is important as part of us seeing ourselves, is us seeing ourselves fully in our rage and how we're able to continue on with that rage or how we're able to diffuse that rage or how we're able to fuel that rage. Um, But then also in the work, I don't think that we would be here and be able to do this work without having rage. Right. I think that's part of what fuels us. That's part of what keeps us going. That's part of what. But I just want to make sure that we have healthy ways um, to to channel it. Normalizing the anger of black people without the weight of policing us, silencing us, ignoring us or erasing us. What I'm really doing is betting on black people, especially black women. Um, You know, I'm just I'm betting on us um, because I feel like. Black people and Black women have bet on me. (laughs) So um, I'm betting on us. I'm betting on us. That's what I mean when I say solidarity is 
the norm for Black women. Yeah. Because when you see me, you see yourself. I know if I ever needed advice or your insight, you would make yourself available. You made yourself available for this podcast because you're in solidarity with me. And wow, what a beautiful and powerful thing that you've been able to capture in your writing solidarity with Black people and put it out. Like I feel solidarity when I watch your when I watch your writing. And so it's all, it all makes sense having this conversation with you. Thank you so much, Felicia. Well, thank you for this platform and all the work that you're doing around Black people, Black rage, Black liberation, um, Black joy. Uh, I am inspired and excited for you. Uh, so thank you so much. <laughs>